Welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we're going to be talking about Hereditary with our special guest, Val Siegel. Val, how do you feel about horror movies? Who are you? Um, <laughs> I, I, well, I've been here before. And I asked you the same question last time. You did. Pleasantries aside, we're going to be talking about the 2018 <laughs> film Hereditary Directed and written by Ari Aster, a household name at this point, producing Hereditary with A24, a household name at this point. Yes, we love A24 here. They do some wacky stuff sometimes, but They do I... some wacky stuff. We're here for it. Yeah, we we're stand. here for it. I mean, it's all good. Everything I've seen anyways. So I guess I'll start out with a question for, for the two of you, since I, I feel like now that I'm the lone man out here, as, as you two are in a relationship, a marriage in fact, is the relationship between Tony Collette and her husband in this movie a healthy marriage do you think well it was yeah it's just <laughs> I think yes is the answer because I don't think you can say it's an unhealthy marriage just because she had a complete mental breakdown she did have a complete mental breakdown you know we get a very small snapshot here it had been I think a healthy marriage. Yeah, the main character Annie, who is played by Tony Collette in what should have been an Oscar-nominated role, has to deal with portraying both the grief and guilt at losing her mother, and then the grief and anguish of losing her daughter, followed by the perturbance of what this largely supernatural force is that is invading her, her son, and her husband's life. And not to mention the the hairiness of the family dynamics in the complications that are that it's the son who causes the accident that her daughter dies in. So it's like very complicated then with all the emotions flying around. Yeah, exactly. And so in this, we sort of see Steve as a one-dimensional character. Oh, I don't agree. You don't agree, really? No. I think compared to the others, he's kind of one-dimensional. Just That's he's... not a fair comparison. You can't say compared <laughs> to the others yes, who I'm... are both having mental breakdowns. Right, he's he's the, uh, the social rock of the, he, the movie and i think I, I think all the acting in this movie was superb but i i mean both times that we watched this was sitting there verbally cheering for steve i think he portrays a lot of emotion but most of it is silent it is all the body language it's the look on his face it's the way he tries to deal with the relationship between peter and annie also he's grieving for his daughter and i think we see a lot of that as he tries to reach out to annie and you know she pushes him further away i think he's really important with that aspect of it you know like the, the mental health aspects of the movie which are very prevalent especially in the middle when they're dealing with you know even more loss but i think he is of little consequence given the overarching demon yeah the demon complicates plot. it a lot because he, he <laughs> the demon doesn't really care about steve you know he, care, he cares about charlie he cares yes. about annie because she's the mother of these two and you know raised these cares about peter but steve he's just kind of like eh, let's just light him on fire it'll be fun right steve is inconsequential for the plot right 
parts, but not the relationships. Steve represents a certain stoicism, so I maybe, yeah, one-dimensional is unfair. I think that what's an interesting perspective in this movie, too, is that he is a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. which... I'm not totally sure. Yeah, he's a psychiatrist. I'm not totally sure what the relationship between psychiatrist and psychologist are. But I would assume that in this, part of his demeanor is a little bit of pathologizing of Annie and pathologizing of himself and Alex. Which is why a lot of the supernatural stuff he doesn't really experience to the same degree. Who's Alex? Alex is the actor that plays the son, Peter. Yes. So psychiatrist is essentially the one who can write prescriptions. That's as like a doctor the main would. difference, right? Yeah, that's that's the main difference is the pharmaceutical training, essentially. And we do see Annie take drugs as a part of it. We also see Steve take drugs. We see all of them take drugs, let's be honest. Yeah, and that's what makes this movie twist, I think, so fascinating is because we had, when discussing it, a point at which we wondered what is the validity of what Annie is experiencing? Because there is the likelihood that a lot of it is just in her head. It's the same thing that happens with Patrick Bateman in American Psycho once it reaches the end of that movie, in which a lot of it is sort of of brushed over in a way that makes you think, oh, this was all just a result of their neuroses or the psychological damage that they had gone through. And so the backstory of Annie's sleepwalking, the strained relationship with her mother overall, then you start to think, is the whole thing with Joan something that she is also fabricating a relationship between her own mother and Joan? Is Steve getting lit on fire by the destruction of the book actually a result of Annie as we had heard in one of the previous sleepwalking incidences she had doused her family in paint thinner and then was holding a match so at that point in the movie you can still kind of conceptualize everything as being in her head and then all of a sudden it's very clearly not a lot of the like supernatural stuff we see when it's from her perspective. The only things that we see early on or even in the middle of the film that are of supernatural nature is from Peter's perspective, like especially when he's in school, he's seen like the light rings kind of flying around that represent Haman. But he's like also sleep deprived. He's going through his own kind of mental break, kind of psychologically tortured by <laughs> this cult. Which to your point, Matt, the fire set- setting of Steve on fire could 100% have been a sleepwalking kind of a situation. But for me, that's the point at which I was like, all right, this is absolutely not going to be mental illness because we didn't see any kind of indication that she had put her mother's body in the attic or that she had done any of these other things. And so to me, for her to be there and from her perspective, see him light on fire is very different. It also have the shock value too that kind of made you feel like, okay, this is the first like supernatural thing that has happened in front of us aside from the light ring. It's like so shocking. It's like, okay, so this movie is like starting to head in a different direction. We did see the chalkboard and the glass moving. Yeah, but that seemed like it was like smoke and mirrors, you know, that was very much like had that cone of paint on it. The removal of her mother's body and the lighting on fire, that was for me where I was starting to question it, but I still considered it to be a part of Annie's overall picture in the sort of unreliable narrator way. Similar to how in Malignant, we do get the two separate perspectives, and as far as we 
know everything in the movie is committed by a separate entity for the first 30 minutes when we still have questions about it. So for, for me, it was still thinking like, oh, this could be something that she is doing that we are not seeing and that the twist in the movie is going to be us getting like flashback sequences of everything happening and seeing Annie actually set up all of this incredible work that is ultimately a part of her psychotic break. And then that's where I think Ari Aster does really wonderful work. He doesn't do that. It's literally Mm -hmm. just exactly what it's saying it is. You try to look deeper into it, but it real there really is not depth. And that's what makes it a good twist too, because like he's leading you in a certain direction. Right. But it doesn't feel at the same time, it doesn't feel dirty because he's he's not leading you in a single direction. He's leading you in multiple directions where you do have. I said multiple times throughout this movie. I don't know if it's real or not. Given all the evidence, you're like, OK, like Annie's mother had dementia. Her dad had depression. Brother had schizophrenia. Plausibly, she could be going through any number of these things or combination of these things uh, as well. So you do have that kind of doubt in her. They also I think we've talked about this before that whenever there's a, there's a classroom scene, Whatever the teacher is lecturing about is what the movie is about. Yeah, always. <laughs> and, and that is definitely the case here, where the teacher, what is it even the teacher talking about? It's a few different things throughout. How, you know, their main characteristic ends up being their own undoing. So for Heracles, one girl in class points out that for him, it's that he ignored all of the signs in front of him. Right. And that ended up being his undoing because he had, you know, this ego, this this idea that, well, that he doesn't have to pay attention to things, right? And with Annie, you know, she, she had all of these warning signs going back all the way through her childhood. She says her mother is manipulative. Her brother, who was apparently schizophrenic or diagnosed as such, thought his mom was trying to put people inside of him. <laughs> Which um, is literally what she was doing. Correct. Um... <laughs> She had all these signs going all the way back that she chose to ignore and she knew well enough not to let her mother be in her life when she had her first child, Peter. Steve said, you gotta go no contact with this crazy bitch. And they did. And then when she got pregnant with Charlie, she let her back in. And I think that's that's the key moment. She ignored all of these signs because she felt guilty. You know, it's my mother. It's, I'm supposed to have a connection with her. Not only did she let her mother come back into her life, she let her mother have control over Charlie. First of all, in the name, the mother breastfed Charlie, which we assume by Annie saying she wouldn't let anyone else feed her. And also in the picture that we see that was drawn of the two of them with her breastfeeding Charlie. Charlie also saying she wanted me to be a boy. Right. Right. And that's why the name is Charlie. So even the name Charlie can be a point to the fact that Annie let her mother name the child as well. Also, after Charlie's uncle, Annie's brother was named Charlie. The schizophrenia and the DID, I will say, are two of my least favorite horror tropes. Mm Mm-hmm. This movie brings them up, but it doesn't talk about them ever again. Well, and I think what's successful with this movie is it's brought up as, okay, these, this is what they were diagnosed with. Is it real? Or do they actually have these things? Or is her dissociative identity disorder actually because she's communicating with demons? Is Annie's brother's schizophrenia actually just his very valid paranoia that his mother is trying to use him as a host for a demon? It's what they're diagnosed with, but I don't think we have any evidence of that actually 
being the case. Right. I, I wonder if there could have been a better way to go about those specifically. This is, again, one of those things, having a family member, a close family member, diagnosed with schizophrenia. I always am cautious when I see it used in media to be like, okay, is this tastefully done or is it like a spooky scare tactic? Because not a lot of people know somebody that has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I, I'm okay with the way that this movie used it because it said it and then it moved on. It didn't yeah. try to use it as the plot point i think it was merely to sow the seeds of doubt in annie but also to just introduce the idea that mental health is a, a large part of this movie i think it was also meant to legitimize the things that annie was saying it's one thing to say oh my mom was crazy and it's another thing entirely to say she was diagnosed with this and the movie's named hereditary so mm -hmm. it also sets up that through line of like oh this is something that is passed down this is a sickness that she got from her mother which is further part of the is it real is it not right so i think it's real and i was like i don't know the movie's called hereditary matt but Turns out something else was passed down in the family, yeah. and it was Paimon. I think that the construction of the dollhouses and the miniatures also start to break in with this theme of alternate or specifically self-constructed realities. Mm -hmm. love that every location in annie's life she meticulously rebuilds in these miniatures so then it starts to ask the question is in the making of these miniatures is she reconstructing is she redirecting the scenes that we are seeing and i love that because there really is no actual plot point to the miniatures it is not necessary it's purely a look into her psychology i think as well as i think a cinematography choice but it's fun it's really fun um <laughs> but like i i really think that it it's just for that look inside her head it's it's seeing how she's viewing events what moments in her life stick out to her right yeah. so she makes a model of her mother trying to breastfeed charlie and it is looking at the things that were pivotal to her well it also helps augment the story because mm -hmm. then we see like other moments that are never really explained like there's one of her and her husband asleep in bed and then there's her mom standing like in her nightgown i believe that's the dementia the maybe or she's it was perceived i yeah. think to well, be the dementia and yeah. do we ever actually see the the funeral home shot right right the act of when she is recreating the funeral home breaking the chair and that being her snapping was almost her coming to terms with the fact that the death happened mm -hmm. and that she would have to get over it there is a point in time in between charlie's death and her acceptance of the death and then the chair snaps and then her being able to then do something or take control of the reality by destroying the fabricated one along those lines we noticed that she also had building almost like a, a daycare or a preschool yeah, that and that's like a the only the unexplained scene that doesn't seem to have any actual context within Annie's life. There's like the clown on the wall and then she looks up at a post-it that says keep, keep working. working. Maybe it. something happened to her when she was in preschool. 
you know, it's a, it's a good look into her psychology. Bringing also back to the Heracles lecture in the English class and the, the mention of he was kind of ignoring the things that were happening around him to make his own reality, believe what he wanted to believe. I feel like she, because of her work and the nature of it, she spends so much time reliving her past and recreating. Yeah, everything is in the past for her. Yeah, that she doesn't even notice what's going on around her, even though it's not super obvious, but it's enough that any of us would be like, all right, demons. And that actually transitions really well into what I think is the most interesting part of the movie, which is her sleepwalking, which is brought up multiple times, but never fully expanded upon. But with a second watch and looking at some of Ari Aster's discussion around the movie, there's this resentment towards Peter that she seems to hold. There's always this difficult relationship. When she's telling Joan about the sleepwalking, she says it's impossible to convince him that when she poured paint thinner all over both her children and was about to light them all on fire, she said it's it's impossible to convince him it wasn't on purpose. And this sleepwalking, according to Aster, is the only part of her that understands what her life is and understands her mother. So it's this unconscious understanding and acknowledgement of the situation. And in Annie's dream sequence, where we see her follows ants to Peter's room, she sees him covered in ants. She admits to him that she tried to initiate a miscarriage when she became pregnant with him because she was afraid. She also says she pressured her to have him, meaning her mother. When Peter starts to say, you tried to kill me, she initially denies it and then yells, I tried to save you. So I think this sleepwalking is her brain told her, to take Peter out. She knew he was in danger. She saw the signs. Because his body is taken over by Paymon in the end through Charlie, which is a whole mess of a thing, but... So Charlie was actually inhabited by Paymon from birth. Yes. She, She was more of an incubator, shall we say. And it talked about how in the book, or it was in one of the voiceovers, they discussed how he is able to get into people through broken people. And Payman lives in the head. And I think it got into Annie first. And that's why we see all of the things happening to Annie. And then it started out actually living in Ellen, Annie's mother, which is why she is decapitated at the end so that she can then enter Charlie, who once is decapitated, it can move into Annie, who once she decapitates herself, it can move into Peter. They really take the possession thing and and run with it. But what's nice about it is that you can see through the little light, you know, the light that represents Paymon, jumps through the attic window, and he dies there. I think that's what we decided today (laughs) when we watched it. You see this shadow crawl out from under his body. It's like, okay, that's Peter leaving, and then you see the light that is Paymon enter it and kind to like fill his body that's after annie had just killed herself we hear the sawing stop we hear the head hit the ground and then we see the light yes exactly he's just he's just party hopping and the book that that describes paymon does also specify he can be in any host he chooses it's not solidified until the ceremony he's not tied down at any point until the very end of the movie he craves a male host and part of the the vulnerability too is they had to break Peter down 
with the death of everyone. There's no purpose to showing the clicks and having him be tormented in school and quickly possessing him to make him, you know, break his own nose and things like that. All of this only serves to physically and emotionally break him down. Which is why in his dream, Annie is trying to pull his head off. It's an acknowledgement of payment. Interestingly, when the light thing happens when he's in the school, you know how it's on the outer edge of the walls and it like goes past him car headlights Mm. and i was thinking that it was supposed to be like an extension of peter having like a little panic flashback attack to him driving down that road and the headlights going past he does have that vision of the rearview mirror that i noticed on our second watch Mm -hmm. in the history class the light ring pulses around him right when his teacher says the words the great depression and it's on the word depression and we get like this sound cue that happens with it it drowns out the word depression which i think kind of uh, very cleverly ties into the whole like mental health allegories also the sound design which we do have to talk about incredible as you would expect from a24 (laughs) yeah they hire good people and the soundtrack is like so a24 if you know what i mean in a really good way always matches what's happening on screen it sets a mood they have music over transitions cinematically which is something that people don't do enough you'll get a single track that happens throughout multiple scenes sometimes three or more scenes which is crazy but also helps to like really tie the story together yeah that ending symphonic music is also so gorgeous which is such an interesting concept in these movies midsummer had the same thing there's these mm-hmm. moments exactly of like what i thought about beautiful symphonic it's rebirth yeah it's it's very secularized too it's genuinely it for Paimon and his cult. It is a rebirth and yeah. a celebration. It takes the really positivistic approach to the endings because both Midsummer and this movie have, for the people left alive, positive endings. Yeah. yeah. The psychology in this movie, though, is exquisite. Yeah. It's solid. You wanted to talk about the body bo- language. Oh, the body language is so good, which I already touched on a little bit with Steve. And how most of his character and personality, I think, come through in his body language and how he conducts himself. He reaches out towards Annie when they're laying in bed after Charlie's death and she immediately gets up. You know, that's him very literally reaching out to try to have this connection because, again, he is a grieving father. The best scene for body language, in my opinion, at the art supply store where Joan has followed Annie there to convince her to come be part of this seance at her at her house to essentially begin everything. Joan's body language is just so good. She's literally manipulating Annie's body language right, to, to match to, her. To get the effect that she wants. She tells her something great has happened and she says, come here. She brings her through the parking lot over to her car to create, you know, this this sense of belonging. Makes it hard to leave. Right, it makes it more difficult to leave because farther away from her car, um, they always say, you know, at work, if you want to not have to talk to people when they come to your desk, you get up, go walk, get coffee with them, whatever, and then you walk them back to their desk because they are less likely to leave. It's the same kind of principle of you're over here now instead of in the middle of a parking lot. We're, we're not equidistant from our vehicles. You are at mine. And then as she tries to tell Annie about her supposed grandson, 
coming to talk to her through the seance and we see Annie disbelieving naturally, trying to turn away. She's trying to use her body language to say, I want to get the heck out of here. I want to go back to my car. That's great for you, but I'm not into this. And Joan physically keeps turning her back towards her. Trying to make it seem gentle, but she actually is quite aggressive with it in, yeah. a, in a few times where she's just grabbing the shoulder and turning her back or acting like she's trying to pat her arm or rub her arm and then she turns Annie back towards her again. And once she's kind of got her really physically close, she says, it would be everything if you came back with and, and just really emotionally traps her into coming back to her apartment with her. Pretty obvious, like from an outsider's perspective, but we've all been in those situations before where we're trapped by someone that we don't want to talk to. Well, speaking of art, Charlie is always making these crafts, right? Oof. And these little like mm. sculptures and so many times just recreates. It's almost like a nativity scene <laughs> kind of idea, but the with the yeah, with the ritual at the very mm -hmm. end in the treehouse. She also makes a sculpture of the headless Annie at the very end doing the downward dog thing. And she's made out of a prescription bottle, which I think is kind of also Delightful. apropos. That scene where Annie is at Joan's house and they're talking about it. I think it's like literally right after they have their first conversation. There's a really long silence where all the shot is, is Annie reaching into her purse, grabbing pills, taking the pills, mm -hmm. closing the pills, putting them back, picking up the saucer, taking a drink. Like, it's really extensive. Suddenly slows the pace of the film, and then it picks it back up. They also do this pacing genius with Peter, like right after the accident, you can just tell he's in shock, and they show his face just melting for about a, a full minute, which is not normal in film. Yeah. And it's so effective, and they continue to show it. Like they, when he goes home to bed, and you can still tell he's still in shock. He lays down in bed, and they show his face just completely still. I feel like mm -hmm. that was probably like the audition for that part, right? <laughs> Can you just look like your world is shattering around you for a minute? Well, it's interesting that shot that you're specifically talking about because there is a really significant juxtaposition in this film between the first half, which features a lot of shots of just people's heads for the second half of the film to feature so many decapitations. There's like a lot of close-up face shots. There's more close-up face shots in this movie than there is in Les Mis with the Kim Kardashian tape. Mads. Not a good one? I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got we gotta talk about this party scene. If you're a demon, you gotta you better get your ass up and possess. <laughs> Nobody wants to possess anymore. Right, so like it's like a teenage party, and they're like chopping up all these nuts and Cake, like I'm they, down they with. make a huge deal out of the nuts, like so many nuts, right? And as we we're watching, I said, "Look, it's Chekhov's nuts," because at this point we know Charlie has a nut allergy, and she's standing there like watching them make the cake, and it's like you still take this massive piece of cake and just wolf it down. Absolutely, no teenager has ever chopped walnuts to put in a cake for their. Also so masterfully, because did you see her technique, hand on the flat side of the blade, up yeah. and down motion with the other? It's just like, you a chef. <laughs> this is not a teenager. They just pulled hot. in somebody from craft services. Yeah, and do you see that house? Was... And we've got Charlie, who's 13 years old. Well, also, this is this is all orchestrated but by she's the cult, right? bit off. Yeah. However, at 13 years old, you should know not to eat nuts. 
You should know that you don't eat anything without asking if it has nuts. But we know she loves chocolate. We know she loves chocolate. We also know we saw those walnuts. They were invisible chunks. <laughs> and the cake was Huge. already made. So they're in what? The frosting, which is also a really weird way to put nuts in cake. But I digress. Maybe there's multiple cakes. I believe a lot of people very firmly that if you had actually looked in a slice of that cake, you would have seen we, the nuts. We <laughs> would have tasted the nuts. the nuts. We could have seen, we saw the nuts when they cut the cake. Because also, first of all, that cake was too small for a party of that size. Second problem, those nuts were huge. Third problem is, yes, of course Charlie has like a death wish. Like that's the whole premise of the of this of this segment. Is supposed to be look back on it and you're like, that was intentional. Yeah. Because all this was orchestrated. I think part of it, too, is that there is a little bit of an admittance or an allowance of her to do so because Peter says, you can have a slice of cake, go get yourself a slice of cake. He gives her permission to do it. Which is even more a part of the guild. I would still... In fact, he actually, he's not just giving her permission. He draws permission. attention to it. He's telling her so that he can go hang out with his crush. He mm-hmm. is using the cake as a method to get rid of his sister, which is what's a thirteen-year-old going to do like, a, like an older teenage party, right? I don't know <laughs> why his mother was the worst, so she knew what kind of party it was going to be, and she was okay with it. And then she chose to send her thirteen-year-old <laughs> daughter with. It's so hard to find a sitter these days. That's the part that I have the biggest problem with, yeah. I guess, is because I think Annie just mm-hmm. wanted Charlie out of the house. That's to put the guilt yeah. in there, and that's why the middle of this plays so well. With the family dynamics and the tension. Oh, that family dinner scene is... That is the moment in this... Tony Collette is acting. I really liked Alex Wolf as well. Um, Yeah, really During that scene. I think it was amazing. I was sitting there non-silently, as you might recall, cheering for Peter and being like, come on, man, like lay it back on her because she's saying you won't accept any blame and no one... And I was like, come on, dude. Like, I know you shouldn't for your own good say this, but I really want you to. And he does. He says, what about you? You forced her to go to this party. That's what's great about that scene too, is that the way they both act they both know that annie is also feeling the guilt and she's projecting her guilt onto peter yeah steve is literally the only one that is not at fault here in some way there is quite a a lot of projection in this in this between annie projecting onto peter which again goes back to that kind of resentment of him she didn't want him to be born because again she subconsciously kind of knew understood this dynamic that was happening Peter says in that dream, too, that she, that Annie has, why are you scared of I don't think it's Peter that she's afraid of, even though that's what they say. I think it's more of like, he's representative of her mom's control over her life and, you know, that mystery that goes on, you know, behind what her mom is planning and doing. Which is kind of interesting because Charlie then is this golden child to her mom. Annie is, is very motherly and very caring towards Charlie. <laughs> to a literal demon. I do want to say what Joan says as part of the ritual at the end. We've looked to the Northwest and in my research in, into Paimon, you have to summon him while facing the Northwest, which is why they're all facing the same way. And it's because Paimon, his house was thought to be to the Northwest, which is kind of strange. Cause, yeah, because like mm-hmm. there's not it's one. It's got to be to the south of somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's south o'clock somewhere. I almost wonder because Charlie spends a lot of time in the treehouse. They have 
have the ritual in the treehouse. I would guess that the treehouse is northwest of the main house. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, just a little thing. And I guess we should say Paimon is an actual demon that is described in the Ars Gosha of yep. the Lesser Key of Solomon. So a yep. real deal demon right here. Um, mm-hmm. If you believe in demons, I guess. Then you should, Yeah, you should look out for Beware Paimon. So this is a little game I put together. I did some research into demons today. It's called Know Your Demons. And mm-hmm. I'm going to list off six demons that may or may not be real, but these okay. demons all appear in different horror movies. So I'll tell you the name, uh, the name of the demon, the name of the movie, and then I just want you guys to, to say either real or fake. So number one is Abilam from The Last Exorcist. Or Last Exorcism, my bad. Real? Okay, Matt, what, you, what, what say you? How is it spelled? A B A L A M. They all sound real. They're all like <laughs> supposed to be demons from movies. I just gotta use my gut. I'm gonna say fake. Abalam is real. Oh yeah. Um, actually, is it the he, blood god? He's actually like Ho's second in command to Paimon. He's a king that serves oh. under Paimon. He's often summoned with Paimon. If you summon Paimon like during that ritual, if they had actually committed a sacrifice during that ritual, then they could have also summoned uh, Abilam, and then there's one other one that's that, that shows up too. So you can, you can get a three for actual. Wow. Yeah, but they're not as strong as Paymon. Uh, next one is Lamia from Drag Me to Hell. Also pronounced Lamia in some pieces of media. If it's in multiple pieces of media. Yeah, I kind of gave that away, didn't I? Same. So, yes, real. Um, although it's kind of like very loosely a demon, it's a child-eating daemon from Greek mythology. Lamia was a human queen who had an affair with Zeus. Hera took Lamia's children as kind of like, hey, you, uh, you slept with my husband, so like, I'm going to take your children. Right, as part of Hera's misplaced anger. Right, and then Lamia decides to eat any children that she can find just in vengeance. Uh, cool. so if she can't nice. have children, why should anyone be able to? Just, <laughs> just another one of Hera's mess-ups. Yeah. Good, so. Go off, queen. Um, next one is Bagu. Ghoul from the Sinister, which we've all Wait. No, I don't think that it's real. Okay. Y- you guys are both right. Bagul is fake. Its name is Bagul. It, yeah, I was gonna say. It's, it's spelled name is like, yeah, it's B-U-G-H-U-U-L. So like, yeah. if you look at so it. Bagel. That's even worse. Really? Yeah. Someone was looking at bagels. it was spelled like. It, I don't know. I see it. I'm like. Like, that, that's that just not like an ancient biblical kind of. Name. All right. Next one might be pretty easy. Malthus. Malthus is actually the the name of the demon that inhabits the Annabelle doll. That sounds real, but yeah, it's not. no, yeah. So you think it's yeah? Fake? No, I'm uh, decided. Yeah, that's what yes, it's real. I'm gonna copy Matt. Yep, you guys are right. Yeah, so there's Malthus, and then some say Malthas, like P H A S. What's really? weird about it being an Annabelle is he's depicted as like a ram, and a they call they call him the ram. Yeah, but Malthus is actually like depicted as a stork. So most mm-hmm. most of the time, anyways. So I guess they just took like the animal. Also thing. weird that Annabelle's and, like a raggedy ant doll and not a ram or a stork. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Next is Pazuzu from The Exorcist. Is Pazuzu real? Wait, you said that. I mean, it sounds like you're Googling it, Matt. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> okay, so the thing is, it doesn't sound Christian, and that's where I'm just like, okay. There are demons in other mythologies. We already had a Greek one. I'm going to so. say, say real. I'm going to say 
fabricated impossible uh, you know what if this is real it's not catholic then it would be why would it be in the exorcist i'm gonna say no it's not real so that that's the sticky part isn't it pazuzu is real oh yeah uh, pazuzu i be- believe isn't it the personification of the west wind pazuzu is a destructive demon used as a repellent for other demons actually uh, he's a protective demon so he was particularly protective against pregnant women and mothers which makes some sense in that thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode of watch new evil this is matt and this is zach and this is val and remember never let a cultist take you to a second location (sighs) zach and matt discuss some of the best and worst horror movies out there check out all four seasons of watch no evil Lauren and Sarah riff on changing topics each week. Whether it's celebrity horoscopes, the poop cruise, or smell-o-vision, you'll laugh along with Dippers. Catch up on pop culture news and reviews every week with Brandon Biggs and Carl on Not Safe for Network. Professor Aaron Donaldson and Purple Heart recipient Charles Horgan break down war movies, their narratives, and the rhetoric behind them on Real War Project. <laughs> 